Welcome to the good, 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 good match show, a show about matches both good and bad, but mostly good, as we venture through all 131 matches rated five stars or more by Uncle Dave Meltzer of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. Together, we break down, analyze, and discuss all the happenings in the matches, as well as the weekly ongoings in the modern wrestling world, which, as you know, is quite strange right now. So without further ado, let's get weird. My name's Aniello DeAngelis. I'm riding solo again this week. Isai couldn't be here. I'm fingers crossed to get him in again this, this coming week. I really enjoy talking with him, and he usually keeps me a little bit more reeled in and level-headed. So on that note, I'll probably go fucking off today on Money in the Bank since he's not here. I'll shoot real hard, you know? Um, so just to kind of cover what's going on in the world right now before we jump into the U.S. weekly shows, the Lucha Fighter AAA Contra, the AAA... Lucha Fighter Tournament has continued. Um, the recent main event was Drago versus Psycho Clown. So we're getting a lot of really, really cool and good and unique matches here. So if you haven't checked out the Lucha Fighter Tournament yet, definitely do so. Especially if you're kind of uh, getting bored with the more U.S.-based empty arena stuff. I think especially the WWE is really sort of hit its limit with its presentation and everything and it just feels like watching wrestling from inside a tomb at this point especially since AEW has gone back to being quote-unquote live last week being live this week being taped however with the amount of people that they have ringside mostly just staff and wrestlers um so wrestlers and not non-wrestling personnel um it's a world of difference I think it was someone on uh, the post Wrestling Cafe Hangout this week was even talking. I think it was Neil was talking about uh, what a weird fucking reference I just made. Hopefully, Kevin, I think Kevin will be the only one to get that. Another reference. Shouts out to the wrestling group chat as always. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's um, you get to see like the blue sky from inside of Daly's place. You actually get to see life outside of this place. So it's a reminder that while the world has sort of stopped, it's still turning at the same time. So. AEW's presentation is leaps and leagues better than the WWE one now. Then over in 2AW, we had uh, Ayato Yoshida and Tank Nagai defeating Ayumi, Ayumu Honda and Shu Asakawa in 21 minutes and 38 seconds with Tank Nagai getting the pin. Thus sort of just further positing the fact that Tank Nagai will be the next challenger for Yuji Okabayashi's 2AW Openweight Championship, which is pretty exciting. I can't wait for that match. Uh, Okabayashi is one of my top five wrestlers. If you've never seen the Gollum wrestle, you should definitely check it out. This guy is all lariats, strikes, headlocks, just the best. Nasty, nasty chops. Probably some of the best in the game alongside of uh, other beasts like Walter, Yuji Hino, and Daisuke Sekimoto. Um, now on that note... Uh, or no, we also had Chango and Kanji Tomato once again defending the 2AW Tag Team Championship titles against Kengo Mashimo and Kunio Toshima in 27 minutes and 12 seconds. Chango and Kanji Tomato are definitely my new favorite tag team. Probably in wrestling right now, these guys have been such a source of entertainment and excitement throughout this entire, I don't want to call it an off period, but during this empty arena era. Then on the other side, we have Pro Wrestling Noah, who continues with just the most head-scratching series of fucking bookings I've ever experienced, I think. So, on their May 9th show, there was a Junior Heavyweight Tag Team Championship match of Yoshinaru Ogawa and Tadasuke 
versus Yohei and Hayata. However, towards the end of the match, Hayata turns on Yohei, I believe. And then the next night, Hayata teams up with Ogawa and then fights Tadesuke and Yohei for the Junior Heavyweight Tag Team Championship since it wasn't decided the night before. First, it ends in a three-minute double countout, and then the match goes another 16 minutes um, with Hayata and Ogawa winning the Stinger group, I suppose, defeat um, Rattles. And it's just, um, none of it makes much sense. In the main event, Great Muda and Marafuji defeated uh, Kazushi Sakuraba and Masaaki Mochizuki in 21 minutes. So Marafuji already fighting his old tag team partner since they lost the belts to Rene Dupree and Elhio Del Wagner Jr. Uh, Elhio Del Dr. Wagner Jr. Um... So yeah, Noah right now, I was super, super into them, especially with the Goshiozaki-Fujita match. I thought that was one of the top three best matches of this Empty Arena era. I would also probably put up there, let's see, the six-man All-Japan Pro Wrestling Tag Team match. And honestly, I think that maybe the best other match we've had during this Empty Arena era would potentially be the Matt Riddle versus Timothy Thatcher match from this past week's NXT, which was just a brutal, absolutely stiff catch wrestling match. Catches, catch can, just the fucking best and one of my favorite styles of wrestling. Just, okay, I have you in a headlock, so you're going to put your arm out. Now I'm going to grab your arm too because every single thing is about limiting your opponent. It's no wasted movement, no wasted space, just really, really good stuff. Um, yeah. So then, after Noah, yeah, Noah, I probably won't be watching for the foreseeable future unless the match really, really sticks out to me. Um, I can't remember who was the next challenger for Shiozaki's title. I think it was uh, Inui, and that's not very exciting either. But again, on paper, now there was the Fujita match, so we'll see what they can put together. Shiozaki's one of the better performers in the world, so hopefully they're able to salvage something because... The past month, especially with the Global Tag League, has just been a never-ending fucking head-scratch, essentially, over in Pro Wrestling Noah. Now for some good news, coming in from New Japan Pro Wrestling, uh, leader <laughs> Harold Maj cut a promo, quote-unquote, noting that New Japan, while they have lost a lot of money during this era, that they couldn't see any other options than the one that they've chosen. And, um, you know, like many people have stated, this didn't sound like a wrestling promoter talking. This sounded like a former, you know, CEO, someone that's been in business for a very, very long time talking. So he sees both sides of it, both the wrestling and the business aspect, whereas Vince sees it as an annoyance. And AEW really hasn't changed anything either. Um, New Japan, I think, has absolutely been the, the company to look at during this period for, you know, what should we be doing? And even though it sucks that New Japan hasn't been around, I'm so happy that wrestlers like Will Ospreay, Tetsuya Naito, Hiroshi Tanahashi are finally getting some time off to hopefully heal up and relax unless they're just in the dojo every day having crazy-ass matches. So who knows? But yeah, on the plus side, New Japan has announced that they will be starting empty arena shows. I think that they noticed or at least began to acknowledge and realize that this isn't going to end anytime soon and rather than just staying off the complete 
for the complete duration that they will be running empty arena shows in Japan and also at the LA Dojo, which is incredibly interesting. So we could get not only the LA Dojo uh, young lions such as Carl Fredericks, Clark Connors, Alex Coughlin, but also we could be, and also Ren Narita's there right now as well. I forgot about that. And then we could also maybe be getting some people like Alex Zane or, um, you know, I can't remember any of the other guys that do the New Japan US tour from this past February, which feels like the last, you know, I guess it was like the New Beginning tour and then the Japan New Beginning tour. So, yeah, um, great news coming from New Japan that they're doing strong, they're hanging in there, and that we will begin to see some wrestling from them very soon. But again, maybe this whole virus was just what we got after we wished for a Tetsuya Naito championship run. This whole coronavirus thing is the monkey paws finger curling, so to say. Um, now for SmackDown, we had Sonya Deville defeating Mandy Rose. And this was so much fun because Sonya Deville is maybe one of the best shit talkers in the business right now. Um, she won in 5 minutes and 54 seconds. Then we had an 8-man tag team match with John Morrison and The Miz with the Forgotten Sons defeating the Lucha House Party in the New Day in 18 minutes and 2 seconds. Another actually pretty damn good match. And then we had Lacey Evans and Tamina defeating Bailey and Sasha Banks in 13 minutes and 25 seconds, as well as Cesaro, King Corbin, and Nakamura defeating Daniel Bryan, Drew Gulak, and Otis in 11 minutes. So it's good to see that Drew Gulak is still around, hanging around in the... I won't want to say main event scene, but he was in the main event of this night, so that's pretty cool. Um, we had a Braun Strowman Bray Wyatt promo that was horrible. I'm really, really was not in this feud, and we'll get into that once we get over to Money in the Bank. Um, yeah, so then let's see here, Money in the Bank. Um, oh my gosh, sorry, my notes were all screwed up real quick. Why is it all repeated? My apologies. Um, Money in the Bank. This was actually only a two-hour, 20-minute pay-per-view. So while I do have a lot of complaints with it, I can't complain that much. Also, to even make it shorter for me, I thought that the pay-per-view started at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. However, it started at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So I tuned in during the right as the... Bailey and Sasha Banks match started. So I actually missed the first two matches in the pre-show match. I heard Jeff Hardy and Cesaro was pretty decent, so maybe I'll check that out. And I also heard that the New Day winning in the Fatal 4-Way Tag Team match against the Forgotten Sons, Miz and Morrison, and the Lucha House Party was also pretty good. So maybe I'll go back to watch those. However, I probably won't be taking the time out of my day to go back and watch Bobby Lashley defeating R-Truth in a minute and 40 seconds. And then R-Truth giving another head-scratching promo talking about how MVP lost a lot of weight. I'm not sure. Obviously, the, the gag is supposed to be that he maybe gained weight, and then that's why he looked like Bobby Lashley. But it's I I understand our true sense of humor, and it's just very weird and scattered. But this just made absolutely no sense to me, even by our true standards. Then we had Bailey defeating Tamina in 10 minutes and 30 seconds. Again, I'm really loving how much heel shit Bailey's getting away with. Um, talk about because usually right when a heel maybe does something in a match so oof like that's so awful then you can expect like maybe the baby face is gonna win so that they don't look like a total geek here and that really hasn't been the case which is awesome to me because i don't think any of these baby faces really deserve the win or anything like that um so for instance in the bailey and lacey evans match bailey giving lacey evans the salute and then beating her that seems so like just 
critical of the Lacey Evans character and just shitting on her. Um, that was wild. And then Bailey just dousing Tamina with water in this match and just like just really being such a just a heelish figure. Um, other than that, I didn't really care at all for this match. I just enjoyed Bailey's heel antics. They are literally this Sasha and Bailey build is slower than paint drying on a wall. I really don't have any interest at this point. I mean, I guarantee I will once it happens. But until we get there, I am just so bored with this Bailey and Sasha will they, won't they thing. It's been, what, four years of this now? So something needs to move in some direction for this to become must-watch TV again, which SmackDown right now is probably the most skippable thing on television, along with 205 Live, which I believe just played a... Actually, you know what? 205 Live played a Dean Malenko versus Ultimo Dragon match. And I'd say that's better than anything on SmackDown. So SmackDown is absolutely the most skippable show on television right now. We then had Braun Strowman defeating Bray Wyatt in 10 minutes and 55 seconds for the WWE Universal Championship. Holy shit. I think that this has to be one of the worst matches of the year so far. Um, I guarantee, or I don't want to guarantee, but this is usually when Isai would be like, ah, oh, come on, it's just WWE, and I'm just going to say, fuck that, man. Um, <laughs> you know, it's just, this was the very worst of the worst in terms of WWE creative. I think Vinny was the one to go off in the Brian and Vinny show and be like, fuck Bray Wyatt, fuck all the stupid ideas, I'm fucking sick of them. And I really have to agree, this just really indicates or feels as though the Firefly Funhouse was a flash in the pan or maybe even more indicative of the creative genius of John Cena than it is of the creative genius of Bray Wyatt. Because if Bray Wyatt was behind this match too, this was just such a shit show. From the really piss poor wrestling, to then the puppets popping up, to this having to be taped because the puppet people couldn't hit their spots on time supposedly, to then the hug segment at the end. All of it was just so awkward. All of it was so poorly paced, poorly executed. This was perhaps the worst match of the year so far by WWE standards. And it only further adds to the shit show of a resume that Bray Wyatt currently has in his new character, his new gimmick, where I think that he's had, what, one good match that you can call a match, which would be the strap one against Daniel Bryan. And that was largely due to the inclusion of Daniel Bryan. And then the Firefly Funhouse, which by you know all accounts was an incredible, incredible piece of media and fiction. But that wasn't really a match. So hard to say what Bray Wyatt really has to offer at this time. And obviously it looks as though that we'll be going towards a Fiend versus Braun feud now. Which holy shit, I could not care about anything less. This Universal Championship has seriously been just the most... Poorly booked, fucking absolutely nothing championship, like, for God knows how long. Because, what? So first it was Lesnar held it for forever, and that was whatever. And then Rollins wins it, feuds with fucking Corbin for months, loses it to Lesnar, wins it back at SummerSlam, then has those absolutely God, God fucking awful fiend matches including Hell in a Cell. Then The Fiend wins it in Saudi Arabia of all places, then loses it back to Goldberg again in Saudi Arabia of all places, only to then have Goldberg lose it to Strowman with zero fucking build at the biggest show of the year. Like, all WWE really had to do for that feud was just have Braun Strowman maybe win a fatal four-way, right? And then he gets 
to challenge for the title. But they couldn't even fucking do that, man. And even that level of laziness is just so confounding for a billion-dollar company. But given that the people we know who are in charge, I guess it's not that surprising because this is the same fucking company that's been doing this shit for forever. So anyway, I digress. Just that the Universal Championship is the worst fucking booked championship in wrestling. Then on a positive note, we had Drew McIntyre defeating Seth Rollins in 19 minutes and 20 seconds. I think this was a solid four-star match. I think both guys worked incredibly hard and really, even with the empty arena, atmosphere still pulled off a great match and I was really, really happy. I am loving Drew's reign so far. He is booked so damn strong, but not in a way that I have found to be overbearing or Roman Reigns-ish or anything like that. I think he's a very fresh voice. He's endlessly entertaining. He has such a grip on his character. His improvisation's great. His cadence is fantastic. His promos are awesome, and his in-ring work is phenomenal, especially when it's elevated by someone like Seth Rollins. So huge, huge fan of this. Um, And yeah, this is pretty much the highlight of the show for me. Because, my God, I did not care for the Money in the Bank, quote-unquote, climb the corporate ladder match whatsoever. Um, This match began with the women entering in the lobby and the men entering in a gym. Asuka then jumps onto the women, who then are knocked down, and Asuka quickly runs into an elevator. And then she spends the next 10 fucking minutes in the elevator... That's right, 10 fucking minutes in the elevator, and where does she come out? Floor number two. So what I'm going to go ahead and say is that for anyone here that's ever seen Game of Thrones, right? Think about how much time it used to take for like seasons one through five, one through six, for them to travel places. It would be an entire season of someone traveling from point A to point B. Then you have season seven, where all of a sudden they travel over the wall and back in a single episode. You have people traveling from the north to King's Landing in half of an episode. People jumping countries in seemingly five-minute increments. This is called spatial awareness, right? So to get from point A to point B, it should only take how long? This long, right? To go from an elevator from floor one to floor fucking two, it should take at most 30 seconds. So when the WWE tells me that it takes 10 minutes for Asuka to go, I have to think, God, this must be the worst fucking office building to work at because it must take forever just to get everywhere unless you want to take the fucking stairs. So then we have another example of, oh my God, um, AJ Styles getting pinned down by a weight and then how did he get out of that? Because we didn't get a C and obviously no one came by to help him. We have AJ Styles getting locked into an Undertaker room, which is just fucking stupid. We had random, lifeless, absolutely soulless fucking cameos from people like Brother Love, um, a random doink, Paul Heyman, who is eating massive amounts of catering in the office, full well knowing that this match is going on at the same time and no one else is there. And why is all this food here just for Paul Heyman? Everything they did was to pop the audience at home, but none of it made any fucking sense outside of being force-fed it during the moment, right? Like, anytime you look back at a single thing in this match, it's fucking head-scratchingly obvious that they didn't know what the fuck to do here, that they didn't have a production team that was up to the caliber to produce something like this because, my God, the amount of camera cuts, the lack of any sort of spatial awareness, and just like the fucking tackiness and the way the lengths that they went to to make their stat or to make their roster look like fucking geeks during this match was mind blowing, just absolutely fucking mind blowing, truly. So 
you have Dana Brooke in the Money in the Bank conference room, right? And she's fighting to get on top of this table, excuse me, to get a briefcase, even though for the past few weeks it's been promoted as climbing to the roof and then getting the briefcase on top of the roof. But Dana thought that she won this. And then Dana also slipped on a floor in like a classic Looney Tunes fashion, but it was so fucking obvious that this is what would happen. WWE is so bad at being like subtle, right? They, they, they don't have a sliver of fucking subtlety in their body. So then we have Ray getting thrown off the roof with no follow-up and a splat noise. And then right after, Aleister Black, who's supposed to be one of the more intelligent wrestlers, decides to do the same fucking thing. Hey, that guy just ran off the roof, so you know what? I'll run to the edge of the roof and try to get this guy. And then Aleister Black gets thrown off the fucking roof as well. It's just, this match was horrible. Um, I'm very happy Asuka won. I guess that's a positive note. Asuka was entertaining during this match. No one really else was. Nia Jax was horrible. Shayna felt horribly misplaced. Um, the food fight was fucking childish. Like most pe- my, people might say, if I hated this, I hated fun. I love to have fun. This was not fucking fun. This was piss poor camera work, editing, complete lack of spatial awareness, no pace, no tension. And at the very least, when they get to the roof, we could have hoped to just have an actual wrestling match for these titles. But no, they spend like five fucking minutes, if that, just doing stupid little spots like, oh, Otis is too fat to climb the ladder, like what they did on SmackDown, but then he still wins the match. And the whole ending too is just, ridiculous i mean give the fucking briefcase to aj styles or have him take it off of otis i'm a fan of otis but it's just like man i was so let down by this match i thought that they they could have done so many cool things you know and i'm not saying that my ideas are any better than theirs because they probably aren't but um you know it's like think about Okay, so they had Brother Love come out. Who the fuck cares about Brother Love at this point, really? It's just because it's Bruce Pritchard is there. Why not have done something with a fucking drywall and have like this, someone dressed as the fucking Shockmaster come out, right? That would have been fun. Or you can have one of the entrants come out and do a Shockmaster-like entrance. Something like that. Actually go into their history and pull out little moments that have happened and recreate those little moments to kind of be like, hey, that's a nostalgic pop right there versus just randomly dropping in a fucking doink a Paul Hammond and a Brother Love and being like, hey, remember this? So on that note, fuck money in the bank. Sure, it was two hours, but at the same time, it was... 20 minutes of something good and then two hours of absolutely fucking nothing. And on that note, oh my gosh, my notes got so screwed up. I have no idea what's happening here. On that note, we get to our good match of the night, which is, hold on one second. Okay, sorry about that. I found out that for whatever reason, my Microsoft Word document just butchered the hell out of my set up on my notes it added a whole bunch of headers and footers that i had to get rid of so then we had monday night raw following up the money in the bank pay-per-view which actually did a 14 percent raise in ratings it opened up with becky lynch relinquishing the raw women's title to oscar revealing that the money in the bank ladder match was not for the briefcase but rather the title this was one of the best segments that wwe has produced in a very very long time muchly large uh uh, much uh, largely due muchly what the fuck kind of word is that man come on um largely due to oscar's entertainment endlessly entertaining factors 
and Becky Lynch's just perfect, perfect promo work. And I don't even know if I can call this a promo because this was straight from the heart. The line, you go be a warrior, I'm going to be a mother, will always stick with me, I think, and it will become one of those classic wrestling quotes. And think about what will happen when Becky comes back. Should she come back? Because at this point, she is out until... Oh, fuck. Actually, you know what? She's out until December, and then she could return at the Rumble, technically. That would be fucking money. But then also, it's like, who really wants her to return for the Rumble when she just had a newborn baby? You want her at home to be able to take care of the baby. Wrestling isn't everything. Remember that. So, that was an amazing start to the show. We had Bobby Lashley defeating Umberto Carrillo in 8 minutes and 45 seconds in a no disqualification match to follow up on the Bobby Lashley disqualification from the match from the week before. And this further posits Lashley as a contender for Drew McIntyre's WWE Championship. That actually could be a pretty interesting match, and I'm not sure actually if it is a repeat of an old Impact Wrestling match because I remember Drew was champion there as well as Lashley. So maybe we've gotten that before. I'll have to go back and check, but it would be cool to check out their earlier matches as well and see how they measure up against their WWE ones because I feel like Drew isn't someone who is largely limited by the WWE style where it feels like Lashley very much is. Uh, He has not done a single thing worth of note, I believe, since re-entering the WWE. I don't think you can bring up a single match that has been impressive, which is unfortunate because he was on a relatively good streak in um, Impact before coming to WWE. Then we had Angel Garza defeating Akira Tozawa and just... God damn it, I've said it every week now for like the past four weeks, it feels like, but Akira Tozawa is potentially on track to go to the finals of the NXT Interim Cruiserweight Championship Tournament, and still, he's 0-8 on Raw so far this year, and that is just fucking confounding because they have so many people, they have Shane Thorns, they have fucking Dominic or Dominic Dijarnets, and all these fucking people, Tootie Miles, Tahuti Miles, all these people... And yet they feel the need to continuously fucking job Akira Tozawa off on television, therefore making every single person in the Cruiserweight Classic, including fan favorite Kushida, Drake Maverick, fucking everyone, the biggest fucking geek. And there's, in my opinion, no way to defend this. This is lazy fucking booking, and this is classic WWE at its very fucking worst. Then we had Drew McIntyre defeating Andrade in 8 minutes and 30 seconds. I feel like this feud needs to end now. It was fun for a couple weeks or even just that one show of just Andrade trying to flex title supremacy. But this is now, I think, starting to lower the stock of Andrade and his people because sure, you have Angel Garza winning a squash, but then you have Andrade, the leader, quote-unquote, of the faction losing in eight and a half minutes. So hopefully what will happen is that maybe Austin Theory goes back down to NXT, as some people have been saying. Garza and Andrade team back up. But now it's like there's really no point of them being a tag team because... You have the Raiders feuding with the Prophets, and then you're not going to have the Raiders lose the Tag Team Championships immediately if they win them. Who knows what will happen anyway. It's just Andrade needs to defend the U.S. Championship. I don't think he's even had a feud for it since before WrestleMania, and now we are almost two or almost a month and a half removed from WrestleMania, and he has yet to do a single fucking thing with his title. Something needs to change. The Iconics re-debuted. They've returned, which is cool. They're a lot of fun on the mic. They definitely had something to prove in this match, so they looked a little bit better in ring, so I got to give them that credit. Defeating Alexa Bliss and Nikki Cross, I'm excited to have some sort of feud for the Women's Tag Team Championships and hope that this continues. 
We then had Cedric Alexander, R-Truth, and Ricochet defeating Brandon Vink, MVP, and Shane Thorne in four and a half minutes in a relatively nothing match, as well as Aleister Black and Rey Mysterio defeating Murphy and Seth Rollins in 12 minutes. If you want an explanation on the absolute shit show of a DQ that this match ended with, please go to the Wrestling Observer live shows, and Brian Alvarez gives like a 10-minute explanation and breakdown of Vince's weird rules, basically meaning that. So, if... Aleister Black and Rey Mysterio are fighting Murphy and Seth Rollins. Rey Mysterio is the legal man and Murphy is the legal man. Seth Rollins can technically attack Aleister Black, but he can't attack Mysterio. It's just like a whole fucking, again, confounding goddamn just clusterfuck of nonsensical booking and everything like that. So, um, yeah, classic WWE. The main event was, I suppose, Shayna Baszler defeating Natalia in three and a half minutes. Um, Natalia probably gets shit on the most, I think, in, in terms of promos. Like, your dad's not here, Natalia. And then Shayna tells Natalia that she'll never be a mother. Like, Natalia is a fucking punching bag in this company, man. Like, they say things to her, all the characters do, that I would be hard-pressed to imagine people saying to anyone in real life because these things are just so ridiculously mean man like seriously like oh you'll never know what it's like to be a mother that heart family is gonna end with you like jesus christ that's a fucking it's intense and then um to the wednesday shows we had aew dynamite which admittedly i did not have time to watch this week i did watch the opening segment with lance archer and jake coming out i thought it was an okay promo by jake but then cody once again feeling the need to just absolutely overcompensate in every imaginable way this guy shows up in a big ford f-150 and it looks like he's about to drive to the ring in this thing but then he just hits like this one shitty little barrier and that's supposed to be the big entrance and then we have to wait for lance archer to walk all the way over like this was just so embarrassing i think and just so fucking tacky and again cool idea horrible execution which i think is maybe the staple of cody rhodes's career at this point um really don't care about this tnt title match i hope lance archer squashes cody i think cody needs to do something else besides this real just it's like a chicken shit baby face he can never do anything he never wins he's always just talking 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 it always takes five minutes for him to get to the ring He's like, um, god damn, like think about the chant, like the, the amount or the level of interest that's a re-arisen in Finn Balor since he turned heel. Cody needs to do something like that. He needs to do it ASAP. Um, so then we had NXT, which I actually really enjoyed this week. Matt Riddle and Timothy Thatcher losing to Imperium in the opening title match. Matt Riddle kicked off his flip-flops in the beginning, hit Timothy Thatcher in the face with them, and then a monkey flip gone wrong, for, um, convinced Timothy Thatcher to leave the match and leave Riddle subject to Imperium, who then quickly capitalized on the handicap and won the match and are now the NXT Tag Team Title Champions. So great news for Fabian Eichner, who's been in the system for a long team or time, or should I say former Evolved Champion Fabian Eichner, and Marcel Bartel, who I agree with Dave, is one of the most underrated wrestlers in the business. Then at Tegan Knox versus Indy Hartwell and a sort of just like Indy Hartwell got some offense, Tegan Knox and quickly got the win. Relatively nothing match. Indy Hartwell was just shit talking the whole time, but it was very much that WWE conventional shit talking. Come on, Tegan, 
Come on, Tegan. Oh, you think you're good? Oh, you think you're good? You think you're better than me? Oh, I'm going to get you. Oh, yeah, you're done. Like, just so unenthusiastic, so non-unimaginative, you know, just like, come on. Um, Tony Nese versus Jake Atlas in a cruiserweight title tournament group A match. Um, Jake Atlas getting the win and finishing the bracket at two and one. So now the way that this championship uh, tourney can work is that for Jake Atlas for two and one, right? That means that Drake Maverick, if he beats Kushida, him, Kushida, and Atlas are all tied at two and one with various wins over each other. That's how it would work in a G1. And then so maybe WWE will do a triple threat of sorts and then have Drake lose in that. Who knows? But then it, you have to have Kushida lose to Drake at least once, and then Kushida wins the triple threat. So why go to that those lengths just to have Kushida win anyway and just to further, like, do we really need to milk this Drake Maverick thing for all it's worth? Because he wasn't even on the show this week. So it's like they're not really, like, I don't know. This whole Drake Maverick thing just rubs me the wrong way. I don't see this having a good outcome. So anyway, um, I, I definitely see Kushida beating Drake Maverick next week. That way, Jake Atlas finishes the tournament in second place. Drake in third. Tony Neeson dead fucking last. We then had a singles match of Finn Balor versus Cameron Grimes. This was fantastic while it lasted. Cameron Grimes is absolutely one of the best performers in the WWE. And this resurgence of Finn Balor and his character and his Prince work is just phenomenal. Um, Damian Priest comes out at the end with his nightstick again because he's a fucking cop. And lays out Balor, which allows Grimes to... Get the foot stomp for the win, or the cave-in, I should say. We then had Jack Gallagher versus Isaiah Swerve Scott in a NXT Cruiserweight title tournament group B match. Um, this was okay. Um, it started off with Scott getting attacked by Nice because he had shit-talked Nice earlier in the night. And then Gallagher eventually getting the win. Um, this was a pretty stiff match, though, while it lasted. But, you know... All things considered, this WWE NXT Cruiserweight title tournament has been such a letdown. When you look at the level of interest and the showmanship and presentation in the Cruiserweight Classic compared to this, it's night and day. I mean, this title match, this title tournament started off with a couple of like, you know, oh, here's a six-minute match, here's a seven-minute match, and now we're down to them getting at most four minutes fighting for time on television, and it's just so fucking depressing the lack of interest that is given on the lack of respect and credit that's given to these cruiserweight title guys who constantly and consistently bust their asses but then you job them out on other forms of television just sort of voiding the entire prestige of the fucking tournament so this entire tournament to be has been a complete misfire call it fun call it whatever the fuck you want but the bucking has been absolute shit um, we had a singles match of Aaliyah versus Kaden Carter. Nothing match. We're still getting a furthering of the Robert Stone and Aaliyah storyline. And then in the main event, Timothy Thatcher versus Matt Riddle in just an absolutely just brawl. I mean, this was the best of, like, this was such a non-WWE match that I just loved it so, so much. Uh, Matt Riddle defeats Timothy Thatcher in 8 minutes and 48 seconds. Even for the length, this was the perfect length for this. Just unbelievable submission maneuvers and catch grappling or catch um, catch point wrestling stuff. Jesus. 
catch wrestling. I'm always confusing things. Catch point, the old Drew Gulak stable from Evolve, which actually had Matt Riddle in it. Um, Matt Riddle and Tim Thatcher actually had a pretty lengthy feud in Evolve, I remember. Um, I remember their, I think it was their Mania weekend shows. There was like Matt Riddle versus Tim Thatcher. Everyone thought Matt Riddle would win the title, and Tim Thatcher basically snuck one out during his, good God, like 730 fucking day title reign. Just absolutely insane. Um, so yeah, this was a phenomenal match. Absolutely one of the best so far of the year, and I think of the Empty Arena era. If you have not seen this match yet, please, please go out of your way to find it. And that brings us to our main event of the evening, Ric Flair versus Barry Windham from February 14th, 1986 at NWA's Battle of the Belts 2. So, Ric Flair, 11 five-star matches to his name. We're going to talk a little bit about the beginning of his career, just and then we'll, as because we have so many Ric Flair matches, we'll fill in the gaps as we continue. So, in the American Wrestling Association from 1972 to 1974, which is so crazy to hear that Ric Flair started wrestling nearly 50 fucking years ago. Flair trained as a professional wrestler with Vern Gagne. He attended Gagne's first wrestling camp with Greg Gagne, Jim Brunzel, the Iron Sheik, and Ken Patera at Gagne's barn outside Minneapolis in the winter of 1971. These camps were known as the most brutal, like Carl Gotch-like fucking wrestling camps. Just, you're getting your ass kicked. If you're not quitting, then what are you doing, you know? On December 10th, 1972, he made his debut in Rice Lake, Wisconsin, battling George Scrap Iron Gadaski to a 10-minute draw while adopting the ring name Ric Flair. During his time in the American Wrestling Association, the AWA, Ric Flair had matches with Dusty Rhodes, Chris Taylor, Andre the Giant, Larry Hennig, and Wahoo McDaniels. Becoming the Nature Boy, 1974-1981. to 1981. In 1974, Flair left the AWA for Jim Crockett's Mid-Atlantic region and the National Wrestling Alliance, and he soon captured... His first singles title went on February 9th, 1975. He beat Paul Jones for the Mid-Atlantic TV Championship. On October 4th, 1975, however, Flair's career nearly ended when he was in a very serious plane crash in Wilmington, North Carolina that took the life of a pilot and paralyzed Johnny Valentine. Also on board were Mr. Wrestling brought Bob Bruggers and promoter David Crockett. Flair broke his back in three places and at age 26 was told by doctors that he would never wrestle again. Imagine being those fucking doctors. Flair conducted a rigorous physical therapy schedule, however, and he returned to the ring just eight months later. Wow. Where he resumed his feud with Wahoo McDaniel in February 1976. The crash did force Flair to change his wrestling technique away from the power brawling style he had used early on, which led him to adopt the nature boy style he would use throughout his career. So, he's someone that has always adapted and always changed, and he has survived for that reason, in all senses of the word. Flair won the NWA United States Heavyweight Championship when he defeated Bobo Brazil on July 29, 1977. During the next three years, he held five reigns as NWA United States Heavyweight Champion while feuding with Ricky Steamboat, Roddy Piper, Mr. Wrestling, Jimmy Snuka, and Greg Valentine, with whom he also formed a championship tag team. However, Flair reached elite status when he began referring to himself as The Nature Boy in order to incite a 1978 feud with the original Nature Boy, Buddy Rogers, who put Flair, who actually put Flair over in one encounter. Now on to his NWA World Heavyweight Championship run. On, on September 17, 1981, Flair beat Dusty Rhodes for his first NWA World Heavyweight Championship. In the following years, Flair established himself as the promotion's main franchise in the midst of emerging competition from Vince McMahon's WWF. An unsanctioned title loss took place on January 6, 1983 to Carlos Colon Sr. in Puerto Rico. Flair recovered the championship belt in a phantom change 17 days later, not officially recognized by the NWA. Harley Race won the NWA World Heavyweight 
Heavyweight Championship from Flair in 1983, but Flair regained the title at Starcade in a steel cage match. This is a really, really fun match, too, if you haven't seen this one. The whole 1983 Starcade um, pay-per-view is just great. Leading up to the match, you have really fantastic backstage segments of Harley Race in his locker room and Ric Flair in his locker room, and they sort of emulated or recreated these during the Cody Rhodes-Chris Jericho promo. So if you enjoyed that, you would really enjoy the Harley Race-Ric Flair feud and match from 1983 Starcade. Officially, Ric Flair won the NWA World Heavyweight Championship eight more times. Flair lost the title to race and won it back in the span of three days in New Zealand and Singapore in March 1984. The first David Von Erich Memorial Parade of Champions at Texas Stadium. Flair was pinned by Kerry Von Erich, but he regained the title 18 days later in Japan and reigned for two years, two months, and two days. 2-2-2. Losing the title to Dusty Rhodes on July 26, 1986 at the Great American Bash. However, Flair regained the title two weeks later. In late 1985, the tag team of Arn Anderson and Ole Anderson began aiding Flair, whom they claimed as a cousin, and attacks against Dusty Rhodes, Magnum TA, and Sam Houston. A few weeks later, the Andersons interrupted Houston's match against Tully Blanchard, and the three villains combined to rough up the youngster. Shortly thereafter, Flair, Blanchard, and the Andersons formalized their alliance, calling themselves the Four Horsemen, with Blanchard's manager, J.J. Dillon, also coming on board. Upon the group's inception, it was clear that the Four Horsemen were unlike any villainous alliance that had ever existed, as the four rule breakers immediately used their strength and numbers to decimate the NWA's top fan favorites while controlling the majority of the championship titles. By 1986, wrestling promoter Jim Crockett had consolidated the various NWA member promotions he owned into a single entity running under the banner of the National Wrestling Alliance. Controlling much of the traditional NWA territories in the southeast and midwestern United States, Crockett looked to expand nationally and built his promotion around Ric Flair's champion. During this time, Flair's bookings as champions were tightly controlled by Crockett, and a custom championship belt was created for Flair. Flair eventually lost the NWA World Heavyweight Championship in Detroit to Ron Garvin on September 25, 1987, so about a year or so after this match took place. Garvin held the title for two months before losing to Flair on November 26, 1987 at WCW's first pay-per-view event, Starcade in Chicago. And that's where we'll end up with Ric Flair here. We'll continue next time we pick up again with his matches. So then we have Barry Windham, who has five five-star matches, which I was surprised by, but that's pretty awesome. And this was also my first Barry Windham match and my first old-school Ric Flair match. So I'll note that before we jump in further. Um, so early years, 1979 and 1984, Barry Windham was trained by his father, Blackjack Mulligan, and popular world champion Harley Race. He debuted on November 27, 1979, against J.J. Dillon in San Angelo, Texas, when he was only 19 years old. Much of his early career was in the NWA's championship wrestling from Florida Territory, where Gordon Soley was the head announcer. He was a fan favorite for most of the early and middle periods of his career, having great success in singles and excuse me, tag action. Wyndham had notable feuds with Kevin Sullivan and his army. With his brother-in-law, Mike Rotunda, Wyndham formed a tag team in 1984. The duo then captured the NWA Florida United States Tag Team Championship three times between March and May 1984. Rotunda and Wyndham were signed by the World Wrestling Federation in October 1984. They debuted in WWF as babyfaces on the November 17, 1984 edition of Maple Leaf Wrestling, quickly defeating Mohamed Saad and Bobby Bass. 
Their tag team was named the U.S. Express, and they quickly made an impact in WWS tag team division as they defeated the North-South Connection of Dick Murdoch and Adrian Adonis for their first ever WWF tag team championships on January 21st, 1985 at a house show in Hartford, Connecticut. The first ever WrestleMania, the U.S. Express then dropped the titles to the Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov. On the July 13th edition of Championship Wrestling, they beat Sheik and Volkov for their second and final WWF tag team championships, which they then lost to the dream team of Greg Valentine and Brutus Beefcake in Philadelphia at the Spectrum on August, 19, or on August 24th. After departing from the WWF, Wyndham and Rotundo wrestled at WrestleRock 86, show in the American Wrestling Association where they defeated the Fabulous Ones. Then Wyndham worked in the National Wrestling Alliance, which we'll get to um, the Territory Championship Wrestling from Florida once again as a babyface, where he most notably wrestled in the main event of Battle of the Belts 2 for the NWA World Championship against Ric Flair and feuded over the Florida Heavyweight Championship with Ron Bass. So, our main event of the evening, Ric Flair and Barry Wyndham shake hands and immediately start circling each other. They lock up, Wyndham hits a side headlock, Irish rip, drop down, leapfrog, but Barry Wyndham does two body slams back to back and is fired up. Ric Flair slides out the ring to recoup a bit. This will be a common theme for Ric Flair doing something to just recoup an inch. Ric Flair finally gets back on the apron after about a minute or so, so they're really stretching out the time here as well. Should be noted that the match went... Let me actually get the official time here. Um, Barry Wyndham versus... God, Ric Flair. Battle of the Belts 2. Let's go to the old... Cage match. Um, Battle of the Belts 2 card. So in 41 minutes and 45 seconds. So this was a long, long match. Um, Ric Flair casually struts back in the ring and fixes his tights and stretches. The two men measure each other and lock up once again. Wyndham again with a side headlock. Flair gets a leg lock, then goes to reverse the side headlock, but after much fight, it's worked down into an arm lock by Wyndham. Wyndham uses the left arm of Flair, and Flair tackles him into the corner. Wyndham then uses the ref to bounce out of the corner, a smart move. Wyndham continues to work Flair down and wrenches at his side and begins dropping some knees into the left arm of Flair. Wyndham continues working the arm of Flair in various ways by controlling the body and the match through vicious and various holds. Flair gets Wyndham into the corner and forces a break. The two lock up. Oh, the two circle each other and lock up. And once again, Barry Wyndham gets the side headlock. So they're just, you know, kind of going through the motions here. But it looks, if anything, that Flair keeps trying and keeps losing. And Wyndham's game plan is just simply better than Flair's. And he's sticking to it. You know, when something works, don't give it up. So nearly 10 minutes of this same spot in sequence, Flair once again goes through the leg lock, but it doesn't work. Flair backs Wyndham into the ropes and forces another break. Flair then quickly asserts his side headlock, but Wyndham breaks it with a vicious Irish whip into the ropes. Flair doesn't bounce off, but more so ricochets off the ropes, and it is one hell of a bump, and we'll just call it a Flair flop, baby, because he's a king of selling. Wyndham then works the arm of Flair, but Flair reverses it and hits one hell of a chop as well. Wyndham's pissed at Flair's cheap antics. Flair then hits a big shoulder tackle and leaps over Barry Wyndham. Wyndham then reverses it into a hell of a pin attempt with his legs. They circle each other. 
Wyndham applies a headlock with his legs. Wyndham wrenches at a down flare. It's a slow, slow start to what will hopefully become an epic bout, and it does indeed become one. Flair works his way out and applies a leg lock of sorts to Wyndham. Flair wrenches the ankle and foot of Wyndham and locks his shoulder as well. Flair tries a pin of sorts, and then that doesn't work. And it's a sort of weird submission maneuver that's indescribable. So Flair, it's like half of a surfboard where Flair has, oh man, kind of like a um, one of those Zack Sabre Jr. locks where you know he has the arm wrenched up. The legs locked, but Wyndham is upside down, and they're so close to the ropes too, but neither man can really do anything. Flair chops Wyndham in the corner, but Wyndham meets back with shots to the face. <coughs> Sequence ends with a great worked punch and a classic Flair sell. Wyndham continues with the punches. You know, have we moved forward in the match? Because this sequence indicates a little bit of a evolution of the style or at least in pacing. Flair then drops in the corner after too many punches. Wyndham now hits a nasty uppercut and attempts a Boston Crab and sinks into it. He is ass to ass with Flair. Flair eventually gets to the ropes and sells the move as though he'd gotten wooden planks shoved into him. Is this the template for an Okada match, perhaps? Of just like, you know, I have to wonder, is Gato a Crockett mark? And I wish Isai was here because he could probably elaborate on this because I think he was just like an old school NWA or just WCW fan. I'm not exactly certain, but... To some extent, I don't think Okada ever takes, you know, this level of punishment. Sam's maybe a Suzuki match. And, you know, that's not true now that I say it out loud. So it really feels like this sort of 40-minute match is perhaps the template for the eventual Okada match. Or maybe it's just that we have two amazing champions in the annals of wrestling history that both succeeded in 40-minute-plus wrestling matches. Um, Wyndham hits a body slam and Flair's foot hits the ropes to break the count. Effective way of making your opponent look great is just by laying down there for the pin, but rather than kicking out, you use the ropes to elevate the move and show that you are fucked up so you couldn't kick out, but that you still are in this. So it's intelligence, it's great psychology. <coughs> Wyndham then applies an abdominal stretch. The commentator remarks, it's like having your body stretched in half. Flair then gets Wyndham with a low blow via the bottom rope and goes for a bottom slam, body slam that Wyndham reverses. Flair throws Wyndham out the ring and he's slowly but surely catching up to Wyndham. Flair lays in chop after chop, bounces Wyndham's head and skull off the guardrail. Um, the ref begins to count Wyndham out. Wyndham is officially bleeding, baby. Blade job. Flair hits a swinging net breaker that crashes Wyndham into the ropes. Flair works over the head of Wyndham trying to get that nice gush going. He then drops a big drop jumping elbow onto Wyndham's chest. Flair grabs him by the hair and places him into the corner. Chop, punch, chop, punch, chop, punch. Wyndham stumbles around the ring and Flair snapmares him. He goes for another knee drop, but Wyndham rolls out of the way. Flair's knee eats literal shit, I swear, like... He jumped so high, and his knee just hits this canvas, and this canvas looks relatively unforgiving. Wyndham then goes for his own figure four leg lock. Flair tries to reverse. His shoulders hit the mat for a two count. The crowd chants, Barry, Barry, at the top of their fucking lungs. Flair finally hits the ropes and breaks the hole, but he is hurt. He sits in the corner, Barry, he sits in the corner, begging Barry Wyndham for no more. Please, 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 no, 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 no. Wyndham hulks the fuck up, and he starts yelling, come on. <coughs> I need some fucking water, man. So Wyndham grabs Flair by the leg, yanks him out of the corner, and begins dropping elbows into the inner thigh. Wyndham hammers away at Flair's head, who is discombobulated. 
pets him again, and Flair flops right. Wyndham goes for a pin. One count. Absolutely no chance, baby. Flair just jumps right out of this, and Wyndham continues hammering away at his head. Flair continues, or Flair crawls into the corner, but Wyndham knees him and miss, and then hits a big hip toss. Wyndham goes for a for a drop kick and misses and knocks the wind out of him. So because Wyndham goes up so high and lands on his back and knocks the wind out of himself, the commentators do a great job of explaining this. Flair now rests, so this is some great pace in psychology. Rather than going right back on the attack, Flair knows that he has X amount of time because Wyndham has gotten the, the, the wind knocked out of him. Funny to say that. And um, he knows he can take a break. Now that we're really into the match, I'm starting to very much enjoy it. Flair goes for a suplex. Wyndham reverses him into an inside cradle. Flair snapmares Wyndham and catches Wyndham with the leg lock, leg lock head scissors. Wyndham rolls Flair into his belly and is able to jump out of the move and then works his way up to a side headlock on Flair. Flair shoulder tackles Wyndham into the turnbuckle a couple times and then begins with chops. He gets Wyndham up and hits a nasty fucking pile driver for a two count. Flair then gets Wyndham up and thrusts him into the turnbuckle. Flair goes for another snapmare neckbreaker. But Wyndham go uh or a snapmare or a neckbreaker. We're not really certain because it could be either. But Wyndham breaks out and begins the pin attempt of pushing the head down. And I I, I it's um let me see here if I can find it real quick. Oh my god, duh, it's a backslide pin. Okay, so Wyndham goes for a backslide pin, and now I've lost my place in my notes um jesus okay windham then backflips flair and both men drop down the crowd is going absolutely fucking bonkers flair whips windham and misses a chop and windham hits a big time shoulder tap tackle flair once again gets his foot to the top rope windham has to got to lock the fucking legs at some point yeah because like this is just so windham's smart enough to be a baby face to you know not really get caught up in many of flair's antics but Every single time Wyndham pins Flair, it's near the ropes, and every single fucking time Flair gets his leg on the ropes. You'd think that eventually Wyndham would learn, but apparently this guy isn't capable of evolving his style mid-match. Wyndham throws Flair out of the ring, and the ref gets in his face about it. Wyndham smashes Flair into the ring post, and Wyndham tells the ref to get the fuck away from him. Wyndham smashes Flair into the next ring post. Wyndham lays punches into Flair in the corner, but Flair hits an atomic drop low blow, and the men then exchange strikes. Both drop down. The ref warns Flair, and Flair acts like he doesn't know shit. It's just a brilliant moment. Flair is up to his feet first, and Wyndham is thrown out, thrown out of the ring now. Flair chops Wyndham on the apron, hits a headbutt, then sunset flip, but Flair stops it and lays in a brutal punch. Flair then asserts a headlock on Wyndham, who looks absolutely out of it, slunk down to the floor and dazed, when suddenly Wyndham gets on a knee, then on his feet, and he begins reaching out, and as he falls, he trips Flair into the turnbuckle, who is also probably bleeding now, I imagine. Flair, it's a big time delayed jumping vertical brain buster or suplex. We can't actually tell if it's Flair's blood or Wyndham's on Flair at this point. Flair begins the assault on Wyndham's legs. Flair applies the figure four leg lock and even uses the ropes as leverage while Wyndham, Wyndham flails and flops around the middle of the ring. He even grabs the ref, just trying not to break there, trying not to give up. The pain is insurmountable. Flair is in firm control when Wyndham tries to reverse the move, but both men are fighting with every single fucking ounce that they can. Finally, Wyndham reverses it, but Flair is right in front of the ropes. It's a brilliant move and positioning, honestly. So the way Flair sets it up is that even he knows that eventually I will get reversed, most likely. So he puts himself in a position that once he gets reversed, he's absolutely perfect. Um, 
Flair begins climbing to the top, which feels weird, but Wyndham stomps. Yeah, especially after the figure four leg lock. I mean, Flair really just hops up on top, and it almost seems to no sells it. I don't know, but Wyndham stomps on over and flips the fuck out of him. Wyndham misses a big-time knee drop, and that just feels so fucking dumb and high-risk. Like, the longer this match goes on, the longer Barry Wyndham is just some baby-face-ass dork. And I don't mean that in a super hard, critical way. It's just that you've just been placed into a figure four leg lock for God knows how long, and now you're going to go for a fucking knee drop, and you're going to miss it. Babyface ass, man, I swear. Flair lifts Wyndham by his hair and hits a nasty knife-edge chop, works the face over with some punches and a snapmare into a double foot stomp to the gut. Wyndham wrenches in pain in the middle of the ring. Flair once again lifts Wyndham, hits a knee to the gut, another chop in the men exchange strikes. Flair dumps Wyndham on the outside on his fucking head, and we're now at about... 37 minutes, I believe. Wyndham climbs to the top, hits a massive missile drop kick, which once again feels as fucking white meat baby face as it does high risk, ill advised, and absolutely stupid. Wyndham works over a headlock as hard as he can. Flares inches away from the rope. Flares now on his back in the middle of the ring as Wyndham continues wrenching in the headlock. Wyndham gives up and drags a lifeless flare into the center of the ring. Wyndham then bounces off the ropes, goes for a finishing splash as Flair gets the knees up. And boom, Flair saves himself. So Flair gets up, goes for the figure four leg lock, but Wyndham reverses it into a pinning, then gets close to the ropes. The two men exchange strike after strike. Flair whips Wyndham viciously, but Wyndham busts out and hits a nasty lariat. Wyndham goes for a pin, but once again... Um, but, uh, God damn it. The two men exchange strike after strike. Flair whips Wyndham viciously, but Wyndham busts out and hits a nasty fucking lariat. Wyndham goes for a pin, but once again, Flair gets his leg on the rope. Seriously, Wyndham has not learned a single fucking thing as this match went on. Literally nothing. He has made no adaptations, no changes in his game whatsoever, and that is not good psychology, I think. Wyndham hits a big vertical suplex and flips back into the pin. <coughs> Almost into like a press. He is his whole body is on top of Flair's like the missionary position. Flair kicks out at two. Flair gets up. Flair gets out and chops Wyndham in the corner twice. And then Wyndham gains control and lays in the punches. He whips Flair, who then busts over the top ropes, sprints across the apron, and launches off the top rope into a fist. They then run the ropes and Flair flips Wyndham over the top rope with a crossbody. The men fight on the outside and this shit just ends in a goddamn fucking double countout. I am so pissed off right now that I just watched a 42 minute match for it to end in a double countout. Go fuck yourselves NWA. Go fuck yourself Ric Flair. Go fuck yourself Barry Wyndham. Gordon Sully too. Why not everyone go fuck themselves? Imagine doing this nowadays, right? Are we spoiled or do we just have no patience anymore? Because yeah, there's going to be two more Barry Wyndham matches, but man, like... Who the fuck cares? Just have Flair go over. I don't know. I guess it's a different time. It's a different era. Overall, I would give this match four stars. It had a really slow start. Once it got good, it got great. But then the ending just murdered me, man. It absolutely killed any excitement that I had for this match. And it just made me feel like I had wasted some time. Am I happy I watched the match? Not exactly. I mean, I reviewed it for the show and I'm happy I did that. But had I known that this would go to a double countout... And the quality of the match, this is not something I would have seeked out on my own. So, the first impression of Old School Ric Flair, I completely get it. You know, for the era, it was incredibly impressive. But the trappings that they fall into with the era of these always no contest finishes, the really slow starts, everything like that. The lack of 
innovative offense. It's always the same sequences, side headlock, drop down, blah, 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 shoulder tackle, you know. These things get old after a while, but the big submission spots are great. The chopping exchanges and the character work is really the highlights of this, and that's what you go to the old Ric Flair matches to check out. Character work, baby. So on that note, we're signing off for today. Hopefully I'll get a GCW um, review up shortly in a PWG one. I've actually just switched medication, so it's been a sort of long week, so appreciate the patience of the three fucking people who are listening to this show thank you so much suck your own we're tuning out remember to follow good match show at good match show on instagram twitter every fucking service subscribe like let us know what you think of the show love you all hope there's light where you are suck your own